Support for Kansas City Today comes from Cleveland University, Kansas City. From its roots as a chiropractic college to new degree programs in health sciences, CUKC is educating healthcare professionals focused on next-level health. Learn more at cleveland.edu slash impact. Support also comes from Grandma's Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'scatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Friday, February 18th. Coming up, Missouri's history of slavery is rarely discussed, but the geography of the western part of the state helped create a dangerously unusual set of circumstances, beckoning the enslaved to risk everything for freedom in Kansas. So usually it was like by like log rafts, and they would try to go across that way, but a lot of times they would wait until it was cold enough that the river was almost frozen or there was chunks of ice in it, and then cross through the ice. More on slavery's footprint around the Missouri River. Plus, we'll hear how a new strategic plan could transform Kansas City. But first, some headlines. The Kansas City Council has approved allocating $25 million to help residents struggling to pay rent during the pandemic. KCUR's Salisa Kalakal has more. The money comes from federal COVID relief funds and will support the city's emergency rental assistance program. Residents can apply to the program to pay past due rent and utility bills. The money will also support case management for households facing eviction. To be eligible for the program, residents must show they were financially impacted by the pandemic. Residents interested in the program can apply online or at city offices at 4400 Martin Luther King Boulevard. Kansas City first established its emergency rental assistance program last year. Johnson County has lifted its mask mandate for elementary schools. From the Shawnee Mission Post, Kyle Palmer reports. County commissioners on Thursday voted to end a public health order requiring masks in schools serving up to and including sixth graders. The order had been in place since the start of the year and remained in force in January when cases in Johnson County spiked to record levels with the Omicron variant. But cases have fallen off dramatically in recent weeks. The vote makes it possible for districts to make masks optional for younger students now. Still, some commissioners voiced worries that ending the mandate could put some medically vulnerable students in jeopardy. Two Missouri students are suing the Wentzville School District near St. Louis for removing books from school libraries, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. The district has also removed even more books temporarily while they're reviewing challenges and complaints. The American Civil Liberties Union of Missouri filed the class action lawsuit on behalf of the students. It alleges the district targeted books that represent viewpoints of people of color or LGBTQ people. Tony Rothert is the group's director of advocacy. This is really a discriminatory removing of books in a way that deprives students of access to differing viewpoints and a diversity of ideas. This is the first lawsuit from any ACLU affiliate in this current wave of attempts to remove books from school libraries. Kansas business groups want state lawmakers to stop cities and counties from banning or limiting the use of plastic bags or disposable food and drink containers. They say allowing local governments to establish their own rules would create a hodgepodge of regulations and lead to higher consumer costs. Kansas Sierra Club lobbyist Zach Pistorius says it's bad policy to block efforts to reduce the tons of plastic waste pouring into local landfills. 
I can talk a, a lot about how plastic has, has uh, tarnished our landscapes in Kansas, our roadways, uh, but I really think that this bill is more about democracy. Pistorius says local governments should be free to set their own priorities. Wichita is one of several Kansas cities discussing a ban on single-use bags. A survey done for a city task force found broad support for the idea. Slavery in Missouri is sparsely researched and rarely talked about. When it is, it's described as having been less severe than in the Deep South. But Western Missouri's unique geography made it a dangerous place to be in bondage, and one of the first places where slavery began to crumble. Here's KCUR's Luke Martin. The banks of the Missouri River don't look like they did in the 1850s and 60s when American slavery was in its final throes especially in St. Joseph, where a double-decker highway now separates most of the city and the river. Back then, before the river was channelized, the mighty Moe was wider and shallower. For enslaved people in this booming part of western Missouri, that muddy river was all that separated them from Kansas and freedom. The proximity was tantalizing, says Cammie Jones, who works at St. Joseph Museums, which includes the city's Black Archives Museum. So usually it was like by like log rafts, and they would try to go across that way, but a lot of times they would wait until it was cold enough that the river was almost frozen or there was chunks of ice in it, and then cross through the ice. A historical marker overlooking the river memorializes one such instance during the winter of 1862, when hundreds escaped bondage by making their way across the ice. Historians call these slave stampedes, and this was perhaps one of the biggest in Missouri, the front lines of the mass escape phenomenon. Despite how straightforward crossing the river to freedom seems, the decision to do so was anything but. You know, a lot of people, half the family would go and the other half wouldn't. Some of them stayed in slavery because they had kids and they could not run the risk of, of making it across. Diane Muty Burke is a history professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the director of the Center for Midwestern Studies. She says slavery here was just as brutal as anywhere, and most escape attempts failed. A slave patrol is basically community organized, and they would ride around and look for people that they considered to be out of place. In the lead up to the Civil War, as violence in territorial Kansas intensified and the number of escape attempts increased, those slave patrols morphed into vigilante groups. Oh, it was a huge concern of enslavers. They were incredibly paranoid about it. Muti Burke documents their paranoia about escapes in a book she wrote called On Slavery's Border. She says Missouri's brand of slavery, think family farms instead of sprawling plantations, meant masters and their slaves lived and worked in close quarters. As a result, the owner's authority was easier to erode, and the enslaved had more opportunities to resist. The enslaved people were very politically astute. They knew what was going on, and even though... Very few people could read or write. Enslaved people get a hold of information by listening to um, white people talk. Grapevine knowledge like that steered many slaves away from pro-slavery strongholds in Kansas, like Atchison, and toward abolitionist bulwarks like Lawrence or the Union Fort at Leavenworth. In the 1860s, an enslaved man named George Washington made that his route from a plantation located where Kansas City International Airport is now. Washington crossed the Missouri to Quindaro, in what is now Kansas City, Kansas. Washington left little trace in Quindaro, but there are folks working to preserve some sense of what this place looked like in his time. Turn the light on back here. Luther Smith is one of them. 
I'm the director of the Quindaro Grand Railroad Museum here in Quindaro. I've been around Quindaro all my life. I was born right down here on 29th Street. Out of a neglected old school building just up the bluff, Smith and others want to turn Quindaro's 160-year-old ruins into a tourist attraction, complete with paved trails and interpretive signs. Quindaro's got a lot of history to it. And that's what I want to leave for people to know, you know, because I'm getting a little bit older myself, a little bit. <laughs> in 2019, Quindaro was named a national commemorative site, but for now, seeing the ruins still requires a hike through overgrown woods. Like Missouri's little-discussed legacy of slavery, the stone foundations sit mostly forgotten, but not gone. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Luke Martin. Last month, the downtown council released a new plan for the future of Kansas City's urban core. It envisions several transformative projects, including a downtown baseball stadium, covering parts of the downtown loop to make a deck to connect the crossroads to the business district, and building a park over Barney Alice Plaza. It also addresses the need for more vital neighborhoods adjacent to downtown, and what the council calls a more equitable downtown. But many neighbors are skeptical. They say focusing resources on downtown KC only benefits a small, privileged segment of the population. KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to two people about what they think of the plan on Up to Date. Here's part of his conversation with Patricia Hernandez, president of the Indian Mound Neighborhood Association, and urban planner Graham Smith. Patricia, again, you're a neighborhood leader from the old Northeast. What was your first impression of this plan? I'm born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. I always enjoy seeing revitalization in our city. Uh, initially, I was, you know, a little skeptical and excited. We did spend a lot of money over in Power and Light and a couple of other areas. I would have liked to have seen some um, direct impact to our bus lines um, and then to some of our sidewalks. Uh, we have a huge trash problem in our neighborhood, which is something that I'm going to try and get funds for separately from the city to, to take care of. So there's just like small things that I found to be a little lacking or taking a long time to accomplish. You know, there's about 55 different languages spoken in my neighborhood. Hmm. I honestly cannot speak for every single one of them, obviously. Um, but my folks don't go down there to utilize some of those um, attributes that are being presented. They may go down there to work, but not necessarily to partake in some of those activities. Patricia, I thought the plan did account for some east-west transportation. I thought it did talk about the need to clean up some neighborhoods. What am I missing there? Uh, so it's more of a centralized location. It looks like it doesn't go quite past a certain part to where it would impact my neighborhood directly. Hmm. What sense did you get from your fellow residents in the Northeast? I mean, what were they saying about this plan? It's always mixed because we have such a diverse community. We have folks from different countries and then we have folks that are from here and that have lived here all their lives like me. A lot of folks are very excited. A lot of folks like the streetcar. They like to go down and do some entertainment business. Some just don't even know. Uh, I have folks from Central America and they don't. They don't really care. Right, right. <laughs> Honestly, right. Um, they're, they're worried about their families. They're worried about schools. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about health care. So what's going on downtown? A new 
baseball park downtown. That's not something that they're necessarily worried about. But then, like I said, I do have residents that are very excited that love baseball, like myself, but right. I'm partial to Kaufman. Right. <laughs> well, again, not to belabor the point, but the plan appears to address the neighborhoods. I mean, you certainly aren't ignored here. There's talk of safer, more walkable streets. Uh, the neighborhoods downtown need to be better connected, the report says. Uh, job creation is key. So there are elements here that appear to be walking right down the road you're talking about. It doesn't go quite as far, I mm. think, because it doesn't it, it stops in Pendleton Heights and it stops in Paseo West and 18th and Vine, which is great. I um, I, I think we need to spend more time at 18th and Vine, especially like up and through to Paseo West. Um, Pendleton Heights is going through their own revitalization and they are doing great. But we we're we're just kind of forgotten up in the corner. We have roughly 10,000 people who live in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty substantial number when you think right. about it. Um, and there's about 35,000 residential homes. And so it just it doesn't go quite quite up to us. Graham, maybe part of the issue here is that when you talk about uh, a downtown baseball stadium and that expense, you talk about placing a deck over the loop. Maybe the concern here is that that's going to wind up gobbling up all the available public funds and there won't be much money left over for the neighborhoods like Patricia Hernandez's uh, uh, Indian Mound neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. I think if this is intended to be paid with through public dollars, uh, a lot of these larger projects, um, then that is certainly a concern. The sense that I got from the plan was that really these are the projects that people think will add to downtown, transform downtown even further, but the funding mechanisms and the way that these things are going to occur is still open for some debate, mm -hmm. and a lot of different resources need to be brought to bear. I would add that to Patricia's point, this was a very targeted effort. I think what would be interesting is, and, and for me, the exciting part of the whole plan is the transformative strategies that you've talked about, Steve, in terms of neighborhoods, housing, jobs, mobility, access, all of those things, how we can take some of those things and tailor them or apply them to other areas of our community. How do you, you know, politically, Graham, you know, keep the focus on uh, neighborhoods like Patricia Hernandez's Indian Mound Neighborhood Association? You know, when you have these big, glitzy, sexy projects like the deck, like the downtown baseball stadium, it seems like, you know, it is fairly easy for Patricia's concerns to uh, become forgotten here. You're, you're exactly right. It is it is easy to look at the big kind of sexy projects and think that those are going to uh, be what moves the city forward. But what we've been trying to help people understand over the last several years is that even the small incremental infill redevelopment, public investments in neighborhoods and housing and people are what are really going to drive additional value in the community. And so we recognize that downtown, midtown represents about 5% of the land area and about 20% of the tax revenue generated. So it is the economic generator. Right. We need to start expanding that influence and that impact outward. How successful have you been on this campaign to talk about some of the more the importance of the little things, uh, Graham? Uh, I think with with neighborhood folks and um, some of the people that are you know kind of on the ground, living it day to day in terms of their neighborhoods, their streets, their sidewalks, their infrastructure. I think we're making great progress to bring that understanding of 
um, what it can mean to their neighborhood, what it can mean to their way of life. They're building their own financial stability and things like that. So um, we're, we're also making inroads at the citywide level um, with different organizations and different folks. Uh, but it takes time to reverse, uh, you know, a 70-year shift that's been moving in one direction. So getting people little by little to understand that is what we're trying to do. Patricia, have you seen improvements in your neighborhood in recent years? I have. So this is kind of a tricky, tricky subject for us. So anytime you have revitalization, you have swaths of people who move out. So that's where I do lose some of my um, diverse population when things start to uh, revitalize. And that's kind of because what the cost of living there goes up, the cost of renting the uh, property taxes, all those things begin to increase, Patricia. That is correct. Um, the scary word gentrification is something that we are we we discuss a lot on our board. Uh, we don't want to lose those treasured folks that are in our neighborhood that have built our neighborhood that have provided a, amazing cuisine and culture to our neighborhood. So um, it, it's just a scary it's it's a scary thing. Um, change is always kind of scary, especially for me um, seeing my my friends move out that that's a little difficult. So housing is extremely, um, it's something that we think about a lot. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske, Patricia Hernandez of the Indian Mound Neighborhood Association, and urban planner Graham Smith. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia dean This podcast is produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Luke's story on people escaping slavery in Missouri, visit kcur.org, where you can find more news and stories about local history. On Monday, we'll have our roundup of legislative news from Kansas and Missouri. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.